following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. Great to see you. My name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here at Missio Day. If you are new with us, uh, I'd love to get to know you. Uh, easiest way to be known is a connect card. It's just that uh, blue and gray card that's in the seat back in front of you. You can fill that out at any point during the gathering. And uh, there's some black giving boxes in the back. You can just drop that in there on your way out. But uh, really thankful that you're here, that you would uh, spend some time with us this morning. Uh, that card also can be used for prayers. So hold on to that for the end. And uh, if there's a way we can pray for you, would love to, love to know how that is. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 16. We are back in the book of Acts. Needless to say, if you are new with us or haven't been with us, uh, it's going to be hard to catch you up on 16 chapters of uh, the book of Acts. But let me just say this, Acts, the book of Acts, is all about the power of God unleashed uh, among his people, the church. And what we've seen over the last, gosh, months as we've studied the book of Acts is we've really covered about 15 to 20 years uh, of the, the, the beginning of the early church from Uh, the ascension of Jesus back into heaven after his death, burial, and resurrection, uh, all the way up till about AD 50 or so is where we find ourselves now. The people of God have been empowered by the Spirit of God, equipped with the Word of God, and they have gone and proclaimed his word to the ends of the earth. And we've seen the, the early church grow from, you know, a dozen or so disciples in Jerusalem to now tens if not hundreds of thousands of believers scattered throughout Uh, various nations and ethnicities and cultures around the world. It's really quite remarkable what we've seen happen. And seeing this sort of pioneering missionary effort throughout the book of Acts has has caused me to ask some questions. Uh, For instance, I I wonder how the gospel first came to Western North Carolina, right? Have you ever wondered that? Like who brought the gospel? Who was the first to, to preach the gospel here in the Asheville area? And what was the reaction to it? You know, how, how did people respond to it? Was there opposition? Was there reception? Um, you know, you, we are a church planting church, as many of you know. We have a, a vision to help plant uh, a church in every one of the 22 counties that make up the 828 area code before, you know, we're kind of done. And, uh, and, and God has blessed those efforts. But I wonder, what was the first church plant in Western North Carolina? Like, who planted the first church? And what kind of church was it? And and, and who was part of that church, and how many churches in our area now could trace their roots back to the faithfulness of that church? You know, these are the kind of questions that sort of roam through my mind, but uh, we do have, I don't know how to find those answers. I've kind of Googled it a little bit, uh, not much, I'll be honest, but um, those answers might be out there somewhere, but we do have a historical record of the first time the gospel makes its way to the continent of Europe, to the region of Macedonia, to the city of Philippi. And that's what we're going to be looking at today, is the first time the gospel advances into the continent of Europe. Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, as well as the gospel according to Luke, is going to paint a portrait for us of the gospel's impact on three specific individuals, almost documentary style. These are God did a lot in Philippi. We don't have a record of all of that, but he takes, Luke takes these three accounts of these three very different people and helps us see a firsthand account of of the transformation of these people's lives who are very, very different in how God unites them as a family together. So uh, we're in Acts 16, verse 11. I'm going to read down to verse 40, so it's going to take me a minute to read it, but I'd encourage you to follow along as I read. Uh, Verses will be on the screens, but I'd love for you to have a Bible in front of you. There are some in the seat backs if you need a a paperback copy, but... um, Let's start in Acts chapter 16, verse 11, and I'll read down to 40. I'll pray for us, and we will get going. Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 11, says this. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, or Samothras, if you want to be weird, and uh, the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. That's Luke's way of saying for a while. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke the word to the women who had come together. 
One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. She prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off him and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. And so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to be your people, grateful to be gathered together today in your presence and in the presence of one another. We are grateful for this word of God that is uh, living and breathing inspired. It is uh, sharper than any two-edged sword, and I pray that you would help me, Holy Spirit, to rightly divide this word, that it might bring encouragement and challenge and transformation that only you can bring through your word by your spirit. And so help us now as we look at what is, for some, maybe a familiar passage for others totally foreign, yet I pray that you'd help us to understand it, to, to see the reality of it, to see the beauty of Jesus in it, to cling to you more tightly, and uh, Lord, that our hope would just be stirred uh, for the name of Jesus. We pray all these things in the beautiful name of Christ, and everybody said, amen. Now, if you have been with us in the, the story of the journey of Acts, you know that uh, the last sermon we did, which was right before Advent, so like late November, Uh, Here's what we saw. Paul and Barnabas had been traveling companions. You remember that they uh, went on the first missionary journey. It was about two years. Nine different churches were planted over the course of that two years. And then they have uh, a falling out. The two of them part ways. And so uh, Barnabas takes uh, uh, John Mark with him, and they go one way. And Paul gets another traveling companion. His name is Silas. Uh, and, And they go, and they start their own missionary journey. Uh, to another direction. Along the way, they get a guy named Timothy who joins their team. He's a young man. He becomes an apprentice. And so the, the three of them are on their way. And uh, Paul kept trying to go 
to different areas to take new ground for the sake of the gospel. And every time he did, the Holy Spirit would stop them. We don't know exactly how, but along the way, they just found closed doors everywhere. They tried to go north, tried to go west, tried to go all these different places, and they were prevented. Uh, Ryan, if you can pull that map up real quick. I don't know how well you'll be able to see this, but that red squiggly line that goes through the green and then up through the red, you guys see that? Okay, so that's their journey. And they were trying to go into Galatia north, then they tried to go uh, directly west into Asia, and every time the Holy Spirit prevented them, so they end up all the way on that northwestern coast in a place called Troas, which is modern-day kind of western uh, Turkey, okay? That's where they end up. They meandered for about 400 miles, which is crazy. Like, think about this. None of us would get in the car right now just for a drive. Like, where will the Lord take me? And end up in Columbus, Ohio. That's like, I don't know why you'd go to Columbus anyway, but certainly not on accident. That's kind of what happened. 400 miles, they just sort of meander until they end up in Troas. Now, while they're there, Paul has a dream, a vision. And in the vision, he sees a man of Macedonia, which is that orange piece up to the top left there. And the man of Macedonia in the dream says, come to us and help us. And so I love how in Acts chapter 16, verse 10, it says this, that uh, as soon as he had that vision... Uh, Let me see where I am here. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. No, duh. Closed doors everywhere. Can't go anywhere. Find yourself in a place you didn't imagine being. Holy Spirit gives you a vision to go to this place, and you go, we have concluded that this is where we should go. Yes, go. So they get on a boat, and they go to Macedonia, okay? They pass by these other places like um, Neapolis, great pizza, not so wild about their ice cream. Uh, and they land, that was a dumb dad joke, they end up Neapolitan, you get it? Okay, never mind. Aha, see, now you get it. All right, it's funnier than you thought. They end up in Philippi. Philippi is a leading city. It's about 250,000 people. Uh, It is a Roman colony, which means that it's kind of Rome away from Rome. All All the systems and structures, all the laws and governing are all the same as you would experience in Rome. The people are very proud of their Roman heritage, their Roman customs, their Roman laws. And so this is where they go. Thank you. You can take the map down now if you want to. So in Acts chapter 16, we find Paul and Silas. They come into the city of Philippi, and their normal custom was to find a synagogue. They would go there. Paul would preach the gospel to Jews from the Jewish scriptures and make converts, and then have a core team for their church plant. But here... The the Bible tells us that they found a place of prayer. Do you see that in verse, uh, where are we at here? 12, 13. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, meaning there was no synagogue. What's important about that? You needed to have at least 10 faithful Jewish men in a city in order to establish a synagogue. There is no synagogue. There's a place of prayer, which is sort of a a last resort byproduct, which tells us there were not even 10 faithful Jewish men in the city of Philippi. Okay? Some of you think it's hard. Some of you ladies think it's hard to find a godly man in Asheville. There's not even 10 godly men in all of Philippi, 250,000 people. Okay? They don't exist. So, now remember, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia. So they're, go, they're barging into Philippi looking for a man of Macedonia, and there's not even a synagogue, which means there aren't any men. There aren't any godly men there. So they go to this place of prayer. We sat down, spoke with the women who had come to gather. And one who heard us, verse 14, was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized... In her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, we're going to meet this woman, Lydia. This is the first sort of profile in Luke's documentary account. If you're a note taker, you can write it down this way Good news for the driven. Good news for the driven. What we learned about Lydia is that she is from Thyatira, which is in Asia Minor. This is exactly where Paul was prevented by the Spirit from going. And now here's an Asian woman that he can proclaim the gospel to. 
She's not from there, but she lives there, which means she probably has a home in Thyatira and one in Philippi. We find that she runs her own business. She's a seller of purple goods. Thyatira was um, known for its purple dyes, which were very expensive because they were rare. Royalty wore purple because it was very expensive and not many other people could afford it. So she has a business selling purple goods to wealthy people. She's driven, she's independent, she's self-made, she's successful, she's wealthy. This is what we find out about this woman. Uh, if she lived in town, she would probably you know, have her own clothing line and have a big fancy house and built more forest, okay? Which, by the way, is the wealthiest city in North Carolina, wealthiest town. But the Bible also says she's a God-fearer, which is interesting because there aren't many Jewish people in, in uh, Philippi. To be a God-fearer meant you were a Gentile who followed the Hebrew God. So she has abandoned the polytheism of Rome. She has embraced the monotheism of the Jews. And she's trying to follow this Hebrew God without the benefit of a synagogue or rabbis or any of that other stuff. What's fascinating to me about that is this. Here's a woman who's self-made. She's independent. She's wealthy. She's powerful. And yet she realizes her own spiritual poverty. With all her success, she's saying to herself, isn't there more to life than this? There's got to be more. And so God is starting to stir in her soul towards himself. And he's drawing her to himself. And that's, so that's why she finds herself at this place of prayer. She's learning to follow uh, the God of the Hebrew scriptures. And so Paul and Silas, they interact with these women. They begin to explain. Have you, okay, what do you know about the God of the Bible? Here, here's what we know because we are Jews and we come from, uh, I mean, Paul uh, spent a lot of time in Jerusalem. He's a Jew of the Jews. And then he says, but I'm going to tell you about Jesus. Jesus is actually the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the, the Jewish Messiah, the Savior. Jesus came to live this exemplary life without sin, without failure, because we never could. That, that Jesus um, took all of our sin and our failure upon himself at the cross and, 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 and to fulfill these Bible prophecies. And, and Jesus took our curse and he paid our debt and he, he gave us back blessing to be received with the empty hands of faith. Like I can imagine Paul saying to this woman who is bent on achievement and success, right? That you have nothing to prove. You have no one to impress because Jesus has done everything for you. And if you would simply receive him, you can be accepted by God. You don't have to become a Jew. You don't have to measure up to any standard. You simply receive what Christ has done for you with the empty hands of faith. And the Bible tells us, that God opened her heart. That's verse 14. He opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So he, the Holy Spirit gives this woman the ability to latch on to the words that Paul is saying. It's not about his teaching ability. It's about God's power at work through what Paul is saying. And she starts to believe it. It, it. it goes into her ears and down into her soul, and it takes root there, and she becomes a follower of Jesus. She surrenders her life to the Lordship of Christ, because we see later in verse 15 that she's baptized, right? She gives profession of faith, and she is baptized. Uh, uh, her whole household, meaning that Paul and Silas proclaim the gospel to her and to her household. They all believe they are all baptized, including her servants, who most likely lived with her, and then watch this, immediately, almost immediately after she is saved, she invites Paul and Silas to come stay at her house. And later we find out that the home of Lydia actually becomes sort of home base for the church at Philippi. And here's why that strikes me. Here's a woman who it seems is driven, independent, all about success and wealth and achievement and, and, and getting more for her, who upon meeting Jesus becomes generous, becomes hospitable, invites these men, these strangers to come stay. She's got a large enough house to, to, to house them and to serve them. Uh, she, she opens her home up to this church. She found that there was something outside of herself, something greater than herself, something greater than her business, something greater than her success worth living for. 
and that the means that she had were given to her by God for the ministry of the kingdom. And she gladly used them for such. So, so there are people, even in this room, that God has given you means. He has blessed you financially. And the reason he has done so, at least one of the reasons he has done so, is so that you can help, you can use those resources and steward them to help further the advance of the kingdom of God through supporting churches and church plants and missionaries and, and, and uh, evangelistic endeavors. And you've got the resources to be able to put into those kind of things and God has blessed you to be a blessing. Others of you have been given time. Maybe you were able to retire earlier. Maybe uh, you, know, you just have the ability to have time to disciple people during the day or at other times when other people don't have that time. Some of you have, uh, have homes. And, and listen, uh, to use your home as a base for ministry is an amazing thing. To be able to welcome people in, uh, to, to provide hospitality for them, to allow community to be created, right? So each of us, no matter, and some of you are like, I don't have anything. I don't got a dime. I don't got a plate. I don't got nothing. Okay. Well, maybe you're the beneficiary of what other people do have. Or maybe there's something not mentioned here that God has given you that you can use for the advance of God's kingdom, for the building up of his church, for the discipleship of other believers, the point in that is, do you see what you do have, the means, the resources, the time that you do have as yours or as entrusted to you to be stewarded for the advance of the gospel? So good news for the driven. But secondly, we see good news for the distressed. Good news for the distressed. Look with me at verse 16. So this is a second Sabbath day, right? As I told you, Luke is giving us snapshots. So this isn't all in succession. This is just another time. Verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She showed Paul and us. Oh, I, can't, I did that in the nine too. She followed. She followed. She didn't show. She followed Paul and us crying out, these, are, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned to her and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. We'll stop there for a minute. Good news for the distressed. It's another Sabbath day. They're going back to the place of prayer again because there's no synagogue. And now we see the second profile the second documentary account. Here's this slave girl who doesn't even have a name. Or she could not be more different than Lydia, right? Lydia is, is uh, wealthy. This girl has nothing. She's in fact making money for other people. Lydia is independent. This girl's powerless. In fact, she, she's treated as property. She is exploited by others. Lydia seems to be spiritually seeking, right? God is stirring her and drawing her. Um, this girl is spiritually oppressed. If Lydia lives in Biltmore Forest, this young girl is an addict prostitute who is walking the streets at night. And so this demonized young girl is following them around and yelling like a carnival barker. Right? And here's what's interesting. What she says about them is actually true, isn't it? Look again at what she says about them. She says, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. That's true, isn't it? The demons always know the truth about Jesus. I, I, um, in my own Bible reading this week, um, I'm in the uh, plan where you read the entire Bible in a year and uh, just reading five days a week. And uh, Mark 1 was one of the early passages. And in Mark 1, Jesus comes into a synagogue to proclaim the gospel. He opens up the scroll he's going to teach. And uh, a demonized man stands up and says, I know who you are, Jesus, son of, or like the, the holy one of God. What do you want with us? Right? Everyone else in that synagogue is a little bit fuzzy on who Jesus is, but the demon knows exactly who Jesus is. 
And so what the demon is saying through this little girl is true, but what's the problem? She is, she's undermining Paul's message. She is um, distracting from Paul's message. That's the goal of this, this demon, right? Uh, to associate this girl and her practices with the message of Paul. And so he deals with it for a little while, and then the text says he's greatly annoyed, which maybe he was. I'd like to think uh, that not only was he frustrated by the Spirit, but he was grieved at the torment of this young woman. And so with the authority of the risen Christ, he commands the Spirit to leave, and the power of God frees her. Think about, for, think about that for a moment. Like in an instant, in a moment, this young woman is liberated. She's liberated spiritually. She is liberated emotionally. She's actually liberated socially because her slave owners will find no value or benefit for, of her any longer. They can't use her as they had for profit. And so they will likely abandon her, which means she's free. And the Bible doesn't say this. This is my opinion over here, away from Scripture. But I'd like to think she went to live with Lydia. This woman of means who has a large home invited her, and maybe she ended up being a servant to Lydia. But, but I think it's safe to assume, at the very least, that she began to follow Jesus. The text does not tell us that explicitly. But if you think about other demonized people who were healed by Jesus, they followed Jesus. I think of Mary Magdalene who was healed of seven demons, and then she began to follow Jesus. You think about the, the demoniac in Mark chapter 5, who, if you know that story, he kind of lived in the graveyard. Uh, he, you know, he couldn't, no chain could hold him. He'd break them. He was sort of like crazy naked guy who lived out in the graveyard. And Jesus heals him of his demons, and immediately he's clothed and in his right mind, and he loves Jesus, and he wants to proclaim the gospel. Now, I don't know what you think about demonic oppression. It is a real thing, but the point is not that. It's this. Some of you are, or at least many of us know people who are slaves to sin, who are slaves to addiction, who are slaves to patterns of negative thinking, accusations and lies that we take in and believe about our identity, about God's love for us, about, about what he really thinks about who we are. And beloved, I need you to see that just like this young woman, Jesus can free you from the captivity of sin, from the captivity of addiction, from the captivity of all those negative thoughts that, that just dominate your thinking every day. That's why Jesus came. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to set the captives free. What holds you captive today? What, what is holding you, do you? Is there a sin that it just masters you right now? Is there an addiction that you don't seem to be able to break free from? Are, are there thoughts that just continue to flood your mind that you know are not the truth of God, but man, they sound so true of you? Jesus can set you free. Jesus will set you free. And it may not happen in an instant the way it did for this young woman, but he has the power to set you free if you will simply surrender to him. Amen? Now, obviously, these slave owners are furious because their source of profit is gone. Their idol has been smashed. And so here's what they do. They're very sly about this. They conceal their real reason for their anger, which is economic, and they contrive another reason. They come to the magistrates and they say, these men are Jews, which is, a, which is true, but it's, it's, it's racially motivated. Because remember, there's not many Jews in Philippi. It's mostly Roman. They have something against the Jews. And so they go, hey, they're Jews, and they're disrupting our way of life. Verse 20, these men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice, which is not true. But now you see the herd mentality. The crowd joined in in attacking them. Yeah, these guys, get them. They're Jews. And the magistrates tore their garments off of them, stripped them naked, and they ordered them to be beat with rods. Paul talks about three times where he's beat with rods. This is one of them. 
And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Now, now listen to this. They ordered him to keep them safely. But verse 24, having received this order, he put them in the inner prison, which is the deepest, darkest, nastiest place in the prison, and fastened their feet in the stocks. Uh, stocks were, so they're already beaten. Like you, you have to imagine, stripped naked, beat with rods. Their backs are bloodied in, in, in open wounds. And the stocks were such that you had small holes for your ankles, and they would, they would stretch your legs as far apart as possible, and you'd be kind of in that prone position to the point where your muscles would begin to cramp up and contort, and it was ex- extremely painful. So though he was ordered to keep them safely, he is torturing them. What's going to happen? Let's look at verse 25. You guys with me so far? About midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Let's just stop there for a second. Does that strike anybody else as, like, alien? <laughs> like, and and we've got to be careful that we don't over-triumphalize Paul and Silas here. Because I've heard this many times. You know, that, oh, they endured this suffering and this pain, and they, what did they, they prayed and they sang hymns to God, and you're like, I don't even understand that, right? Like, I'd like to think I could do that in that same position, but I really doubt it. Um, Maybe, maybe their faith and their confidence in God was that strong. Or maybe that's all they had left. Maybe they had nothing else left. Imagine the discouragement of, of, of Silas. Okay, he joins Paul on this missionary journey. Paul, this, you know, radical convert who's planting churches all over and God's doing miracles through him. And he goes, yeah, I want to join Paul's team. And he joins the team and they wander for 400 miles, not knowing where they're going. That's the first thing they do. And then they get beat with rods and thrown in jail. Silas is like, "Um, how did we get here? Imagine the anger, the doubt, right? Certainly he had to be doubting Paul a little bit, (laughs) like this is God's man. Uh, Doubting himself, doubting God, doubting God's goodness, his faithfulness. The confusion, the fear. We don't know what's going to happen. We're thrown in jail. We're probably going to be murdered. We didn't even get a chance to really proclaim the gospel to anybody. When we are beaten down by life, And all of us at some point or another will be beaten down by life. And it's nothing but pain and turmoil and more pain and more turmoil. And everything else gets stripped away from us. You know what will never be stripped away from you? The word and the spirit of God. And if that's all you have, that's enough to make it through any trial, turmoil, storm, any of that. This is where... Colossians 3 starts to actually become real. In Colossians 3, Paul says, um, let me just read it because I'm going to paraphrase it badly. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. And then he says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with all thankfulness in your heart to God. Paul didn't just write that in at the end like, these words are fluffy. He lived it. Worship is not filler. Like, okay, we, we do a lot of hymns around here. We do other songs that are based heavily on Scripture. And we don't do that because they're fun necessarily. We don't do that because it's entertainment. Corporate worship is not just to fill time until the sermon comes. Prayer is not just something to make an easy transition from one part of the service to the next. Prayer is for the battle. Worship is training for war. So that when all other stuff is stripped away, these truths of the scripture in song and in prayer are in your heart and in your mind and God can recall them. And when you got nothing else left, you have that. Does it make sense? That's why I get so frustrated when, when, when we, we 
sing these songs and we're just all kind of standing here like, when's it going to be over? Like you don't get what worship is really for. It's to prepare you for these times. That had nothing to do with my sermon. Now, my last point is good news for the disinterested. Good news for the disinterested. It's the middle of the night. Paul and Silas beaten, bloodied, in the stocks. The jailer who was torturing them is sleeping. He should be on call, but he's not. He's sleeping. Earthquake. Everything's rattling, right? Chains are falling off. Doors are opening. It's dark. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Now, we don't know much about this jailer, but here's what we do know. Um, Because he's a jailer, which is a civil service job, he was more than likely a former Roman soldier because the civil service jobs went to the Roman soldiers, which means he's probably a hardened man. I don't know how much you've read about Roman soldiers. They weren't the squishy types, okay? He would, he would talk about sports, not feelings. Uh, he was kind of hard and working this blue-collar job. If, the, if Lydia lives in Biltmore Forest and the slave girl is like walking the streets of downtown, this brother lives in Leicester, all right? Nothing wrong with Leicester. It's fine, okay? He's just a regular guy working a regular job, spiritually indifferent. Just sort of one day at a time, right? just like some of us. Earthquake happens, doors fling open, all the chains are falling to the ground, wakes him up. And here's what he knows. He was sleeping on the job. And the reality is, if you were in charge of a prisoner and they escaped, then you would suffer the consequence that they were supposed to suffer. He knows they were probably going to be murdered. And so he's like, you know what? I just failed miserably. He's full of shame He knows the punishment by his own company will be death. And so he thinks to himself, why not just end it now? Pulls the sword from the sheath. And as soon as he does, he's about to jam it through his own heart and and put himself out of his misery. He hears Paul say, stop. We're all still here. And he cannot fathom how these prisoners who he has treated so despicably would stay when their shackles are off and the doors are open. And it it just puts him completely out of sorts. So he brings a light in. He sees that they're still standing there. And in a moment of clarity, all of his indifference and all of his complacency falls away. And it's almost like he goes from the darkness to the light, right? From, From blind to being able to see. And he asks this question, sirs, how can I be saved? Which is the best question anyone can ever ask about anything in all of the world. What do they say to him? Believe. Believe in Christ. Believe in Jesus. They don't say, well, you got to join this church. They don't say, here's 10 steps to a better life. They don't say, well, you got to jump through these hoops and we got to circumcise. You. We gotta do... No, they just say, believe in Jesus. And he goes, okay, what's that mean? And they go, let's tell you. And they start to explain the gospel to him. Okay, how Jesus, the perfect one, took all of our sin and shame and failure on himself at the cross so that he can cover our shame with his righteousness so that we are fully accepted in him and all we do is receive it with empty hands. And in a moment, this brother and his household, by the way, who hear the message proclaimed, he's like, you gotta tell my family about this and wake him up in the middle of the night. What, can we tell you about Jesus? <laughs> and he, they told him the whole gospel And all of them believe. And this jailer is absolutely transformed. Okay? He goes from tormentor to tender. From harming these brothers to showing them hospitality. He dresses their wounds. He washes their wounds. Right? They wash him of his sin. And he washes them of their stripes. He puts food in front of them. He feeds them. I mean, this... this, it's as amazing, right? Because real repentance is visible. You know the story of Zacchaeus, wee little man, wee little, right? He was a tax collector. He was a sinner. <laughs> he was taken more than he should and profiting off of it. And he meets Jesus. And what does he say? Whatever I've taken, I will pay back. 
with extra. That's real repentance. Okay? Uh, Lydia, this woman who, by all accounts, was uh, focused on herself and her success and gaining and building more for herself, she becomes generous, hospitable, opens her home, houses the church, right? Finances the, the ministry of the early church. The jailer, brutal man, con- changed and in his repentance shows hospitality and care to these men. Now, some people have asked, when, when Paul got that vision of the man of Macedonia, who was it? Some think it was Alexander the Great. Some think it was actually Luke, who might have been from Philippi. No one really knows. My opinion, again, Bible here, Revelation of God, Brian's opinion. I think it was the jailer. I think the man that Paul saw in the vision was the jailer who said, come over here and help us. And Paul knew through prophetic vision that this brother's entire family would come to faith, which is why he proclaims it to him and then goes to his household and baptizes all of them. You can form your own opinions about that. Real quickly, I don't have time to finish these last few verses, so let me just summarize them by saying this. You guys hanging in? They try to get rid of Paul and Silas quickly, right? Like, okay, maybe if we just beat them up and throw them in jail for a night, they'll sort of sober up and we'll get them out of here. And when they try to do that, Paul's like, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, we're Romans, you mistreated us, okay? We, We need to take care of this. Why would he make a fuss about that instead of just getting out of town? Um, probably because Paul needs to set the record straight, not for his own pride, but for the sake of the mission of God. Uh, if, if the word about Paul and Silas continued to grow through Philippi, that these brothers were disturbing the peace, causing trouble, getting, wanting people to break the Roman laws and customs, uh, it would be a barrier to the gospel in Philippi. So Paul is like, no, we've been mistreated. They need to know We need the affirmation of these Roman authorities that we're not here to destroy Rome. Okay? And so he calls for that. And they come and they're afraid because it was against their laws to to treat Romans the way they treated Paul and Silas. They apologize and and, and they sort of affirm in, in 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 a way that the gospel is no threat to Rome. Even though, we'll see next week, it turns the entire world upside down. And here's the thing I really want you to, to, to see. Verse 40, it says, When they went out of the prison and they visited Lydia, went back to her home, and when they had seen the brothers, that could be translated brothers and sisters there, they encouraged them and then departed. This is so beautiful to me. Before Paul and Silas came to Philippi, to Macedonia, to Europe, there was not a single believer in Jesus in that entire continent. And now as they depart, there is a fledgling church made up of women and men who had surrendered to Jesus, made up of all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds and socioeconomic classes and struggles and situations who were gathered together as a family, worshiping Jesus together as a family on mission with God. And the beautiful thing is, 10 years, roughly 10 years later, Paul from a jail cell writes a letter to the church at Philippi. And as you read the the um, opening lines of Philippians chapter one, you can't help but feel the emotion, the tenderness that Paul has for these people, thinking about folks like Lydia and, and the jailer, and perhaps even this little slave girl who's part of that community. Like imagine the slave girl is the one who's reading the letter of Philippians to that church. How beautiful that is, right? So you can sense the tenderness in Paul's heart towards these people. And then he says, I am confident that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. And and boy, this does change the world. I mean, from this point forward, the gospel invades the continent of Europe. Okay, most of us are of European descent of some form or another, which means this is our ancestry too. This is our gospel heritage. So what do we learn here? Three, three last little kind of closing thoughts, and then um, I'll get you out of here. First is this. No one, and I mean no one, is beyond the reach of Jesus. I know that's not news to you, but I, I need you to internalize that. No one is beyond 
the reach of Jesus. I was thinking about that little passage in um, Luke chapter 4 when Jesus is in the synagogue and he's preaching. He, he opens the scroll of Isaiah and it says this, um, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Lydia was wealthy but poor in spirit. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Slave girl is a captive. And the recovery of sight to the blind. I think you could argue that the jailer was blind to the things of God and just apathetic and indifferent. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There is no one. We interact with people all the time and we might think, man, they are so focused on career and success and whatever. They're so driven like they don't see their need for Christ. Other people, maybe even some of you in the room who feel so broken and used up and, and, and oppressed that why would God even want me? People we know that are just slaves to addiction and we're like, they seem so far gone. Other people, and I think we all know people who are just indifferent. They, just, they don't care. They don't, there's no spiritual questions that come to their minds. They don't think about spiritual things. And we think to ourselves, how in the world will that person ever come to, to faith in Christ? Well, it just so happens that God's in the business of doing things that we don't expect. <laughs> of performing miracles that we never thought could happen. So no one's beyond the reach of Jesus. I know you know that. The second thing that occurs to me is this. Jesus is the, the one who must open our closed hearts in order to receive him. All of us, by nature and by choice, our hearts are closed to God and the things of God. That has no bearing on our morality. Some of us are very, very good. Some of us are very, very bad. But all of us are born, and by our choices, our hearts are closed to the things of God. And it takes God awakening our hearts, opening our hearts to the things of God. Lydia, he, the Holy Spirit, was at work in Lydia before, before she was seeking him. He was seeking her, drawing her to himself. The slave girl had to be rescued by the power of God to eliminate the uh, demonic oppression from her. Even this jailer, uh, it, it wasn't so much the earthquake, it was the fact that these brothers stayed behind. But they were not going to get their freedom at his expense because they already had their freedom at Jesus' expense. And so it was the, the, the witness of these brothers by them just standing there that led him to realize his need for God. It's God who must open our closed hearts, which means if we know people who have closed hearts, let us be praying, pleading with the Lord that he would do what only he could do in their hearts. And then finally, the Lord chooses us as his instruments of grace. You and me, knuckleheads that we are. <laughs> Isn't that God's pattern? Like some of you think, I don't know, I, I can't tell anyone about Jesus. Look at my life. I don't know if I know what to say. I don't know if God wants to use me. I don't know if I'm worthy of being used by God. And yet, God uses broken, busted up people every single day to tell other broken, busted up people about Jesus, doesn't he? I'm encouraged even by Paul's account here that it wasn't altruism that caused him to cast that demon out. It was his annoyance, <laughs> right? He was fed up with it. Get out of here, spirit, and it obeys him on the authority. It's funny, right? I love it. So, so like, why do we think that God doesn't want to use us? Why do we think that God can't use us? He's in the business. The entire group of disciples were broken, busted up, knucklehead, you know, B-team people. And it absolutely transformed the world. Why, why wouldn't he use us? What is God unwilling to do through us for the sake of people? Okay, a uh, couple questions I'm going to throw up on the screen for you, and then we will move into our time of response. Thanks for your patience with me, friends. First question is this. You can write these down as they come. Take a picture of the screen when they're all up. Um, but I want you to contemplate this. How has the message of the gospel been good news to me? So you think back on your conversion, um, your story of faith, places you've been, things you've been through, how has the message of the gospel been good news to you specifically? Let that encourage you. It is good news, right? God has delivered me. He has saved me. He has shown up and been faithful to me over and over and over again. How has that message of the gospel been good news? Secondly, 
who in my life needs the good news. And I think about all the different relationships that I have, family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, people who are um, very wildly successful and don't seem to need God at all, people who are, you know, at the very bottom, you know, um, the, the, the very lowest point because of addiction or, or sin struggle or oppression, people who just seem to not care, not need God. Who needs the good news? And then the last question is simply this. How might the Lord want to use me as an instrument of his grace? Praying right? and then being obedient, whatever. I, I guess my hope and my heart in this is that we would just be a people who open our hands before the Lord and say, um, Lord, I, I, I'm so thankful for your grace in my life, for the good news. I want to be used by you to extend your grace to others, and I'm open to how, however you want to use me. Whatever you see fit, I'm open. I'm receptive. Use me as your instrument to help other people come to know and love Jesus. All right, so I'm going to leave these questions up on the screen. And then uh, I'm going to pray for you, and then I'm going to invite you to communion. So if you are a follower of Jesus and you... Uh, would like to participate, we'll invite you to these tables. There are two stations at each table. So that's four stations. So it should be two at a time here. Uh, you can come down these aisles. There is uh, uh, gluten-free bread at both plates and then uh, wine and juice, whatever your conscience allows. If you're still uh, cautious, there are little rip and sip cups you can take back to your seat. But you come in thanksgiving for what Christ has done. You come in, in um, dependence on his spirit, on in, uh, in, in repentance of, you know, sin and self-reliance. And um, we break the bread to remember the broken body of Jesus that brings us wholeness. And we dip into the juice or the wine, remembering it's the blood of Christ, which, which cleanses us of sin and, and makes us righteous, right? It gives us his righteousness. And so uh, we come in gratitude. Uh, if you're not a Christian, you can just stay seated during this time. This is not for you. Uh, but as you come to these tables, you can take those elements on your way back to your seat, uh, there are giving boxes if you want to give an offering, uh, stewarding your resources for the kingdom. If, you, if you're new here and want to give us a, a connect card or a prayer request, uh, those, you can put it in those boxes. And then the, the band's going to return, sing some songs, and we'll get you out of here, okay? All right, Father, thank you so much for these people. Thank you for an opportunity to open the scriptures. And uh, I pray that something that has been said this morning would encourage and challenge the people of God and that we would be more dependent on you and your spirit and cling to Jesus more tightly, and that you'd use us uh, in, in ways we do not expect for the advance of your kingdom, for the good of others. So help us to be receptive and open, and, uh, and may the good news flow through us as it has come to us. We love you, and Lord, as we respond to you now, would you be honored and glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.